Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Good morning. What is up, you guys? Chris coming at you with another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Today, well, listen, guys, today I'm bringing you an episode of Young's Greatest Pupils, but it wasn't a planned episode. It was kind of an impromptu episode. I don't really know what I was trying to do with the series apart from explore Young's ideas and, uh, you know, getting the take from his pupils seemed like the the wise thing to do, uh, not only from the horse's mouth, but from some of those important people. And von Franz and Neumann is who we've been talking about back and forth like a ping pong game, like a Jungian ping pong game. And um, uh, somebody on Twitter introduced me to a guy named Edward Edinger, who's also a Jungian and um, wrote tons and tons of books. Um, one of them caught my eye. I bought it. I talked about it on the podcast. I, I, I mentioned it. It's called The Eternal Drama. And it basically does what um, Neumann and von Franz are doing, where von Franz is, as you guys know if you've listened, she's um, taking a look at fairy tales and talking about how you can understand them psychologically. And Neumann's doing the same thing at a really high level, um, and he's using um, he's using some myths. He's talking about the Babylonian creation myth and some others. Um, von Franz uh, talked about the Maori uh, tribesman creation myth. So we're seeing all that sort of stuff, um, these early creation stories and fairy tales and so forth. And what Edinger did was he did the same thing, but he did it with Greek mythology. And that was one of the things I was a little bit disappointed about and I'm not deep into Von Franz, but as we're going through all the fairy tales, I'm not seeing a lot that I'm familiar with. I expected to see, like, you know, titles of stories that I know from um, uh, Hans Christian Andersen or from the Grimm's Brothers or something, right? I was expecting to hear, you know, Rumpelstiltskin at some point or Hansel and Gretel or something, but I haven't. It hasn't been that way. It's been like Inuit stories, Native American fairy tales and Irish fairy tales and stuff like that. It's all very cool. Don't get me wrong. Um, I just expected more of it to be, I want to say relevant, but I don't think that's fair. I just mean like culturally relevant, you know, something that I would know. You know, it's a lot more interesting when the stories are stories I've heard before, uh, which is why I I'll bring up Bible stories all the time when we're talking about these things. And, uh, Anyway, Edinger does this with Greek myths, and they're familiar to us. You know, even uh, I, when I say us, I guess I mean us in the West. Um, even if you don't know the fairy or the um, the myths uh, from Greece and Rome, even if you don't know them, you, there's things about them you know because they're in our music, they're in our language, they're in our art, 
you know? Uh, you see the images. You, you're familiar with, with them in ways that you probably don't even know you know, but you do. And so getting into these Greek stories I thought was going to be important, you know, like contrast some of these stories that we haven't heard with stories that we have heard so that the psychological explanations will hit closer to home. You're like, oh, yeah, okay. Because that's what happened to me when I encountered Jordan Peterson. He told me biblical stories in a way that applied to my life. And I thought to myself, oh, yeah, okay. And it made those stories interesting. Like I told Kyle, uh, for the first time since I, you know, maybe I heard those stories. So anyway, uh, I think this is a super interesting contribution. It wasn't intended to be part of the series, uh, but I think I think it makes sense to to add it in. Whether we're going to see any more Edinger on here, I don't know. Maybe we will, um, but let's get into it. So I'm gonna intro Edinger for you. Um, I don't know a whole much a whole bunch about him yet. This is the first book of his I've read, um, but this is what I do know. Edward Edinger was an Iowa boy. Midwest boy like myself, born in 22, graduated from Yale Medical School in 46, and he worked in the military as a doctor until the early 50s. At that time, he meets a woman named Mary Esther Harding. She was the first Jungian psychoanalyst um, to really establish herself in the United States. She was an English lady, but she established herself in New York. And uh, he worked with her there. And I think that was the turning point for his life. You know, he was a medical doctor. He had a degree in chemistry before he went to medical school. And, um, you know, he, he was, I don't know what kind of medicine he was doing in the military, but uh, I don't know if, it, if that was psychiatry or psychology, but it, it's, not, it's not clear that it was. But when he meets Mary Esther Harding, that's what it becomes. So this stage of his life really culminates in, Edinger's founding of the Carl Jung Institute in New York, but also publishing by himself what amounts to a library of books on Jungian thought and psychoanalysis. So there's like tons and tons and tons of material uh, that hopefully I'll get to um, at least some of it at some point, but this is where we're starting. So that's Edinger in terms of the personal stuff, uh, timeline and all that. But Edinger's take on the psychological meaning of the Greek myths is striking, but hasn't, in my opinion, distinguished itself from von Franz and Neumann, except for in readability. Edinger's very, very easy to read, very straightforward. Um, however, in his opening chapter, What is Mythology? That does a better job of illustrating Jung's concepts of the collective unconscious, archetypes, and their connection to dreams, myths, and religious stories better than any I've encountered so far. So that, that is a tipping of the hat to Edinger. He encapsulates in a few short pages where our myths come from, how they were and still remain significant to our lives, and why they have endured. He shows us the transpersonal psychological forces that Jung spoke of as the gods that they've always been. And he shows us ourselves in those stories. In so doing, he puts the gods right back where they belong, within the psyche of each human being. Now beyond this, 
We examine only a few Greek myths today, but we'll focus on the creation story, the cosmogony, which tells of the creation of the gods and of the cosmos. So this is our Genesis story from the Greek, ancient Greek perspective. And it's a timely addition to our you know, parallel exploration of Neumann um, because it's, it's led us to nearly the same psychological phase as that represented in the ancient Greek cosmogony, which we're going to talk about. Where Neumann speaks of the Ouroboros, the Greeks spoke of chaos. What Neumann called the separation of the world parents, the Greeks called the birth of Gaia and Uranus. Intrigued? Well, I hope so, because here we go. All right, this first bit I'm going to call What is Mythology? This is the title of the opening chapter, and it was really, really good. So I'm going to do my best to make that come through for you here, but uh, quote number one reads like this. A myth expresses metaphysical truths and gives answers to the basic questions of life. So if you want to know what metaphysical means, well, he sort of told you that when he said it gives us answers to the basic questions of life. Um, physics, you know, uh, is something that we use to um, to describe how the world works. Metaphysics is the sort of philosophy that we come up with to explain that at the deepest level, you know, the deepest hows and whys and what fors. Those are our metaphysical truths, and they're not always connected to um, the hard sciences, you know. They're, it's more like philosophy. It's more like art. And he goes on, he says, By scientists, mythology is seen as a primitive effort to give explanations of nature. Philosophers and theologians tend to think of it as a primitive philosophy or religion. The historically oriented read the great stories as half-forgotten deposits of historical happenings that are left in the folk mind in the form of myth. Anthropologists and sociologists see myths as describing changes in social structures. For artists and poets, mythology is a treasury of images to be used in their craft. All right, so what, what he's saying here is that myth has applications across all of these different categories. You know, scientists look at myths and see it as primitive science. Philosophers look at myths and see it as primitive philosophy. Um, theologians look at it and see it as primitive religion. And everybody sees themselves in it. And that is exactly the significance of myth. That is exactly the psychological significance of myth. Everybody sees themselves in the stories. What they love, what their passions are, they see them in the stories. How? How is that possible for scientists, philosophers, theologians, artists, historians, all to see themselves or some primitive version of their thoughts in myths? <clears throat> They're like universally applicable. And that is something you want to pay attention to. Because when you see something that's universally applicable, that's what Carl Jung was going to call an archetype. It's a pattern that, that you're falling into. It's a pattern that you're recognizing. It's a pattern you might recognize in yourself, but you might recognize it in others. And you might recognize it in stories. So there's something really hard to explain about that. It's something that Carl Jung called transpersonal. Something like a 
something like a spirit that runs through multiple people or all people. Um, and, not, and beyond beyond people, you see it in a story, right? That's strange. So it's like the multiplicity of meanings or the infinite interpretations of a myth is indicative of their archetypal nature. Everyone sees significance in them equally, even across diverse categories. And this indicates a deeper truth being reflected, a human truth that transcends and includes all of the categories. And that's what you want to look for. And that's where the significance comes from with myths. Why are myths important? That's why they're important. Because they show you yourself. How they do that? It's a mystery, man. All right, let's keep going. There is now an understanding of mythology that incorporates all these. This is the psychological view of Carl Jung, which can be summarized by saying that mythology is the self-revelation of the archetypal psyche. Let me just pump the brakes for a second. So Carl Jung's depth psychology says that mythology is the self-revelation of the archetypal psyche. So the stories we tell that become our myths and our religions are something like a way for us to communicate something to ourselves that's very difficult for us to understand. We, put, we can wrap them up in stories and we can tell them and repeat them. And little by little over long stretches of time, we come to understand what the significance of is, what the meaning is. It's a self-revelation of something archetypal, of something unconscious. So we tell stories as a way of coming to understand something that is unconscious, something that we cannot understand. It's like the unconscious is revealing itself to the conscious. And that's, that's interesting because I look at the unconscious, I, I don't think of that word to be um, any different than God. So I'll loosely, I could say that God reveals it itself to the conscious. And so that's why mythology and religion and this word self-revelation, that's a very religious word. That's why mythology becomes religion. That's why it's in the same ballpark as religion, because what it's revealing to you is something like the God part of yourself, the unconscious part. And we still don't know exactly what that means. It's, it's a mystery. All right, this passage goes on. It says, Jung conceived of the human psyche as consisting of two interpenetrating levels, the personal and the archetypal or the transpersonal. So the personal and the transpersonal. You can imagine the personal, that's your, that's your experience. The transpersonal is like human experience. It's something that's common among human beings. And that's the archetypal part of our, of our reality. He says, the personal level derives from the immediate experience of one's own life. The deeper archetypal level does not have its source in personal experience, but is an innate psychological structure present at birth and common to all human beings, just as the physical structure of the body is. This inner structure is composed of the archetypes, universal patterns representing the typical experiences of mankind. So let me pump the brakes again. 
Isn't that interesting? The archetypal level, he says, is something that we inherit, something that we're born with. It's a structure of our mind that we are born with, the same way as we're born with a certain structure of body. We have a physical structure that we grow into, and we have a psychological structure that we grow into. It's a pattern. It's a form. And it's something that everybody shares, and it's innate. It's built in. It's inborn, you know? And when he's, when he's talking about the archetypes here, he says what they are are universal patterns representing the typical experiences of mankind. So you look at your own life and your friends and family and, and uh, you know, the experiences you've had, you have with other people, and you see things that happen to them that also happen to you. And you can see things that sort of seem to happen to everybody, you know, like like heartbreak or falling in love or something like that, that these ex- or being born, you know, these experiences are experiences that every single human being that's ever lived or ever will live shares in common. So they're patterns and they repeat. And you might wonder why. It's like human beings are all very different, you know. We're different genetically. We're different, you know, psychologically. We all have different experiences. We all have different nature and nurture. Why in the world would you wind up these these um, mechanisms? These all these different human beings. You wind them up and let them go, and you notice that they're that they're living out similar patterns. Like why? If all if we're all unique little snowflakes, why in the world are we existing within the same certain patterns? Where, where, where do those patterns come from? Why are we subject to them? What is going on? Now you might wonder, um, and I talked about falling in love and being born and some of those things, but you might wonder when we're looking at myths, what these universal patterns might be that we're seeing presented to us. And the hero story is a really common one. You know, you see it everywhere. It's what's well, kind of in every story. In every story, there's a hero or a heroine. Every story, you know, you wouldn't care to watch the story if you, if you weren't invested in a character. That's what we, who we call the hero, you know? And the hero is somebody that has a goal, has trials and tribulations, and finds a way to overcome, and finds a way to succeed. And you can call that Superman. You can call that Luke Skywalker. You can call that Uncle Jack. You can call that, you know, your neighbor, your neighbor kid from growing up who once, you know, saved you from whatever, falling out of a tree. I don't care. There's tons of examples, an infinity of examples of heroic acts. And it doesn't matter to us whether we're watching them in a movie, reading them in a myth, or seeing it acted out in the world. We recognize a hero story. And the, the, the process of that hero story, carrying that heroic act out, is a transformative act. It's something that makes you different than you once were. Maybe it's just simple as being more brave, but you're different than you once were. And you have this, this archetypal experience of transforming, you know, of growing into yourself, of becoming worthy of yourself, of becoming what you, you know, always could have been. And at each stage in your life, you see that happening. And we can easily open up our religious stories and see abstract versions of the very same things that we are living in our lives. Hero, hero stories and trans, transformation stories. All right, so Edinger goes on. He says, the archetypal level is revealed in religions, in the fruits of human creativity, and in dreams and visions. 
Jung suggests that mythology too arises from this non-personal layer of the human psyche. In the myths, we find particular forms and images through which we can grasp the archetypal realities that underlie all psychic experience and to a large extent determine it. Okay, so so there's something <clears throat> unconscious, you know, some uh, structure and patterns that our consciousness um, and it sort of functions within some sort of a framework, some sort of system that is both conscious and unconscious. The same way we experience ourselves to be is something that's partly conscious and partly unconscious. And the unpart, unconscious part, it reveals itself to us. Um, and some of the ways in which it does is in our dreams, visions, in our myths, and in human creativity, which is interesting. I mean, you see it in, you see it in things like art, you know, um, archetypal images in art all the time. Oftentimes they're, they're religious art, you know, it's um, the Virgin Mary or Jesus or Zeus or Thor or something like that. Those are the paintings or the sculptures, but those characters represent some archetypal model, you know, they're versions of some archetype, some instinct, some pattern that, that we're born with. So we can see them in our myths and in our religion and in the same way that we see them in our dreams. And I think that's interesting. It's like we don't have control, it doesn't seem like, between the images we see in our dreams, even though we're creating those images. They're coming from us and only us, you know, our, our, our brain and the chemicals and, and the activity going on in our brain. And yet we can see strange things, things we've never seen before. You know, it's really interesting dreams. Where are those images coming from? Jung says they're coming from our unconscious, the little hints, the little whiffs of, um, of something divine, something that we don't have access to ordinarily. And we take those same sorts of images that you see in your dreams, and we recognize them in our myths and in our religious stories. And that brings us to our next section, which is called, Why Should We Study Mythology? All right, Edinger says, As we reflect on the mythological images, we are studying facts of the psyche and are trying to interpret them. So isn't that interesting? So mythological images, this is something like Jung would call an archetypal image. He's saying what those images are, are facts of the psyche, facts of the mind. Hmm. He goes on, he says, Some of these interpretations are fallible, of course, but the facts are not. The facts, the mythological images themselves, have a reality that transcends interpretation. So archetypes transcend interpretation. That means that they can mean something to you and something different to someone else, and then it means something different to you later on. We all know a book or a movie or something that we love and we've read or watched many times, and as we grow older have different experiences. Those books and movies have different meaning to us than they once had. That's what, he, that's what he's getting at when he says that archetypal images transcend interpretation. That's what we're seeing in our books and our movies, right? That, that, that transformation of meaning that goes along with our own development, that's what we're seeing there. Archetypes. And when he talks about a reality that transcends interpretation, what I hear there is a reality 
that exists with or without any particular individual. Isn't so this is what he means when he says transpersonal. Like it's like an archetype is powerful and meaningful and significant to me. But if I'm gone, it's significant and meaningful to you and to everybody else too. But what if we're all gone? Jung says, even if we're all gone, those things still exist. And Edinger agrees. They have an existence all by themselves. And that's spooky. I mean, supernatural. What does that mean? And there's a, there's a, a great analogy that I'll bring, bring to your attention. That's something that comes up when we talk about consciousness, phenomenal consciousness. But it's the idea of colors. Right? So let's just take a color, for instance, green. And um, scientists will say, that green, the color green, it isn't in the grass. Scientifically, physically, it's not in the grass. The color green is not in the grass. And yet, the same sort of scientist might say to you, well, it's chlorophyll, and the light, you know, the light shines in, and it, it, it absorbs all the other colors but green and reflects green back out, and that's why you see green. No. There's light reflecting and absorbing. Yes, that's happening. Um, You know, all that stuff is true. But the color isn't there. The color is in the observation. It's in my mind and your mind. The color isn't in the physical world. Color isn't in the physical world. There's no physical explanation. Physics cannot describe color. It's a phenomenal... It's a a phenomenal um, item. You know, just like pain is a phenomenal item. If <laughs> So the question where is green is an interesting one because the idea is that you might see green in a, uh, in, a, in a blade of grass and you might see green in a lake and you might see green in, you know, a painting or whatever. But where that green, where that color is, isn't in the painting and it isn't in the grass. It's, it's only in consciousness. And even if there were no conscious beings there to experience the color green, that doesn't mean that green went away. That, that the possibility of the experience of green still exists as a potential thing, you know? And that is a way of understanding the unconscious. It's something like a potential thing, you know, a potential behavior, a potential... Um, well, a pot- anything, right? A potential anything. All right, and Edinger goes on. He says, as we consider the basic images of Greek mythology, we should ask what the particular images could mean in our own individual lives. It is important to read the myths psychologically to connect them with living experience. And why? Why do you want to connect myths to living experience? I mean, partly because you want it to be applicable to your life, but also because that's what the archetypes are. They're patterns of lived experience, patterns of experience. So when you read your religious stories, when you read your sacred scriptures, that's how you should be reading them, right? You want to find yourself in those stories. And that's, that's how those stories become personally significant. That's how they become religious stories, because they connect deeply to you on a personal level, on the, on the level of experience, you know? All right, Edinger says, With every myth, one can bring personal associations to each figure and image, 
just as in dealing with a dream. All right, so this is super important. You know, we, we talk about these idea, the idea of a cloud of associations. I bring it up all the time because I think it's fascinating. And I hate to give the postmodernist credit, but I have to give them credit for this because they, they're the ones that brought it to my attention. That language, that words don't have any meaning. And you might think that's very weird and strange and obviously wrong. But hear me out. The postmodernists say if you ask somebody what a word means, that what they're going to give you is other words that have a similar meaning. And then if you ask them what those words mean, they're going to give you other words with similar meaning. And that just, as long as you have enough words, that process goes on forever. That meaning only defers constantly to some other word whose meaning defers constantly to some other word. And the question is, where's the meaning then? It's lost. But not exactly, you see, because if you take them all as a whole, if you take all of those associations as a whole, every word that came up when you were trying to, to define you know, the original word, you have a cloud of meaning there. You have a, you have a relationship Something like a spirit that runs through all of those words. Something like an archetype of meaning that runs through all of those words. And that isn't a direct answer to what the words mean, but it's something. It gets you in the ballpark, right? And so much in, in life is like this. It's not just that words uh, have a cloud of associations around them that give them meaning. But that's sort of how our lives are, you know? We're surrounded by things that give our lives meaning. Um, even on the quantum level, when they talk about the fundamental physics, that's how they describe electrons, that they exist in quantum clouds, that they're a cloud of associations with everything around them, and that they can collapse from this state of potential into a state of physical reality. You know, wave function collapse is what they call that in physics. So you've got this idea of a of a cloud of associations. And Edinger brings it up with mythological figures, with images in myths, which are illustrations of archetypes, pictures of archetypes. And we bring our associations to them. And this is another way why they're deeply personal, why, why real spirituality is deeply personal. Because we flesh out the meaning of these archetypes. The same way we do with dreams, Edinger says. We have a dream, and then we analyze it. What, what did we see? What did we feel? What do we think that means? It's us that gets to determine the meaning of the images. And then he says this. He says, when Heracles is condemned to serve Erethesis, the question must be asked, how have I had experience like this one, where tasks have been imposed upon me that parallels the myth? Asking such questions is apt to draw up associations, a thought, or a memory. By paying attention to these associations, one will start to build a personal connection to the myth. Particular myths will be living themselves out in one's own life. Now imagine that. Imagine you encounter a myth and you read it and you're like, man, that's exactly what I'm going through right now. Like, how is this story telling me about myself? Especially when the story was written thousands of years ago. That's the kind of mystery, that's the kind of magic that archetypes hold. 
that Edinger says asking these questions will be rewarded every now and then by a shock of recognition that says, this is my myth. This is myself as I am seeing here. I might ask you how many, how many, how many Christians, let's say, in the audience see themselves in the image of Jesus. How many? I think that might be related to what Kyle and I said when we were talking about paganism and Christianity, and talking about ways in which paganism seems alive, like it's connected to what it means to be alive in in, in this sort of mystical way. Christianity doesn't seem to have that same connection, at least in the modern West. Uh, at least for me, uh, and Kyle sort of agreed. It doesn't seem to have that same that same component. But imagine if it did. Imagine if we saw ourselves, if we identified with Jesus as the hero in the story, and we said, "This is my myth. This is my story. This is me. I'm seeing here." Imagine what Christianity would be like as a religion if that were the case. All right, Edinger says, the Greek myths are sacred scripture. Myths are not simply tales of happenings in the remote past, but eternal dramas that are living themselves out repeatedly in our personal lives and what we see all around us. Right? Because archetypes are common. They're instinctual forces, instinctual ways of being. They're common between all human beings. So if we can write a story that tells that experience, then we're going to read it and see ourselves in it. And the crazy part, the craziest part is that we're alive. We're living out this experience that the story we're reading is telling us about. How, how is it that we find ourselves living out an experience to which a story already exists that explains what happened, how you got there, and how you're going to get out? It's amazing. It's like we're telling ourselves from our deep past, like our ancestors are whispering to us, this is how you get through life. You know, this is how you develop and become an individual. It's amazing. All right. Um, all right, he says, where did I leave off? He says, ah, to the extent that we can cultivate awareness of this transpersonal dimension, life is enlarged and broadened. So if you're aware that the life, that, the, that what you're living out is a story that's been told before, and you have access to that story, that it makes your life more than it once was. It puts you in this greater context that you are now an embodiment, a manifestation of an experience that has been had uh, countless times before us and has been codified in, in our religious stories. And here we find ourselves, the thing that's acting it out, that's keeping this story alive. Isn't that a weird way of, of putting it? And it makes our lives broader, larger. It encompasses more, right? It encompasses this spiritual element, you know? Because now it includes awareness of transpersonal patterns, of gods, you know? And we exist in that story. He says, just as Moses is eternally bringing down the law and Jesus is forever crucified and resurrected, so Heracles is eternally performing his labors. 
All these dramas are happening in us and around us constantly. They are eternal patterns of the way life happens below the surface. All right, so we see our so we see in our myths a reflection of the things that we're living out in our own lives. It's like a prophecy, you know? And it, you know, so when he says that these things are continually happening, that's what they mean. He means that they're continually happening in us. So when he says just as Moses is eternally bringing down the law, you can see the myth of the story of Moses going up and bringing down the law of God, right? Down to the people. Well, that's what we do. We judge. We judge people all the time. Just like Moses came down and said, what the hell are you doing with a golden calf? You know, knock that shit off. Here are the rules from God. We're doing that all the time. We judge just like Moses judged. So Jesus was, he says, forever crucified and resurrected, right? It didn't just happen once. The cr- being crucified and resurrected happens to us all the time. We sacrifice and are reborn. We transform. That happens to us constantly. The story of Jesus tells us that. That's going to happen to you over and over and over. You will be crucified and resurrected. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? All these dramas are happening in us and around us constantly. That's what Edinger said. God damn, the hair's standing up in my arms right now. All right. Um, he says, Knowing that the gods exist makes one less likely to mistake oneself for a god. In this way, myths help tell the ego what it is not. By reflecting it, mythology enables us to get some grasp of the transpersonal dimension, which otherwise would be overwhelming in its raw primordial power. So there's a lot going on here, but the first thing I want to talk about is the first sentence. Knowing that the gods exist makes one less likely to mistake oneself for a god. I got mixed feelings about this because I understand the point. I understand that the ego, the thing that we identify as ourself, that's not God. Um, but I do believe we are God, so I don't, I can't entirely go with them on this. But I do think it's interesting that having the notion of gods, the lowercase g, um, of supernatural or psychological or spiritual forces. Now remember, to Carl Jung, the word spiritual and psychological are the same word. So the ego is, is, um, is one amongst psychological forces. The ego is one spirit amongst many gods, right? One god amongst many. And having an idea of gods, transpersonal psychological forces that, that like a spirit that runs through all of humanity, that tells you what you, the thing you identify as yourself, the thing that psychologists call the ego, it tells you what that thing isn't. Otherwise, you have the tendency of conflating it and making yourself feel like um, you know, bigger than you are, you know, you run the risk of maniacal arrogance. So there's some ego dampening power that religion has. I think that's probably true. And then he says, by reflecting it, mythology enables us to get some grasp of the transpersonal or spiritual dimension, which otherwise would be too overwhelming. And I think that's also true. I mean, psychedelic experience tells you something like that, 
that if you get closer, the closer you get to an experience, a pure experience of the divine, uh, the more impossible it becomes to experience it at all. Um, it's something that, uh, well, to, to, to um, reference a myth, it's like, um, um, I don't think it was Jason, but whoever, whoever was um, going after Medusa, you know, in the Greek myth to destroy Medusa, could, couldn't look at her in the, in the eyes, right? Otherwise he gets turned to stone. Could only look at her through a reflection in, in his uh, shield, right? He could only see the reflection of her because looking at her straight on was going to destroy him. I think that is 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 an apt analogy to a psychedelic experience where you might feel as though you're coming face to face with God. You can't experience it directly. You can only experience it by looking at its reflection, you know, by looking at it through some filter. And Edinger saying that is what mythology and religion does. It provides this narrative filter that connects something divine and impossible to experience with your human experience. It's amazing. It's something like a taste, like an inclination towards the divine reality. And that taste, it's fuel for curiosity and seeking, right? If you get a taste or a hint that there might be some supernatural or spiritual or divine reality or dimension to reality, as soon as you get a whiff of it, then it causes you to seek after it. You're like, what was that thing? You know? And that brings me to my next section, which is called, Where Do Myths Come From? Art Edinger says, the psychological view is that they emerge progressively from the collective unconscious and gradually are worked over and embodied in some durable form. So myths emerge from the collective unconscious. That's, that's the place where the archetypes exist, you know, the unconscious. And they kind of bleed through the unconscious into our reality until they are embodied in a form that's, that can endure. And maybe that form is a story. Maybe it's a ritual, something like that. So it's like we see ourselves and others act in the world. And after a while, we begin to recognize patterns, patterns of motivation, of values and pursuit, of obstacles that you encounter, patterns, right? Then we abstract those patterns to see the transpersonal that connects them all together, the spirit that runs through everyone the same. And distinguishing these patterns allows associations to attach themselves to them, fleshing out the spirits and the gods with all kinds of things, with unique names, with personalities and powers of their own, with realms of dominion, you know? So the moment we can distinguish the patterns, then we dress them all up and make them gods. And we give them names and we bow down to them. It's interesting, you know? Edinger says, one observes that certain historical experiences when they illustrate some basic and universal feature of the human psyche, turn into myth. So there is an interchange between history and archetype. And I think that's interesting because it explains how the images associated with the archetypes uh, and their associations transform and change over time and across cultures. 
you've got the same archetypes existing in human beings. But because culture changes and language changes, the, the archetypes change. And you can see that as the evolution of religion. The stories change. The names of the gods change. The powers they have change. What associations they have change. But you can still, if you're a clever person, you can still see where they came from. You can still see the links from one god to another across cultures and across time. You know, the Dias Pater of the, of the ancient Indo-Iranian uh, and, and Indo-European people. Dias Pater became Jew Potter, became Zeus. You know, the same god. Different stories, different associations, same God. All right, then he says, in the Iliad, Helen says to Hector that Zeus has given them a hard fate so that thereafter they may be the subject of a future song for men. Right? You guys remember that story? What he's saying is that well, let me let me let me, let me just keep reading. What she, what she is saying is that we have to live our hard fate now because we are destined to exemplify an archetypal image for the future man. All right, so so Helen tells Hector that Zeus has given them a hard fate that they will be a song for men in the future. What that means is that they will be remembered for what they did that they will be an object of admiration and an object of imitation, that people will look at the, the remembrance of what they did and they will be able to do that themselves. They will follow that pattern. They will imitate the hero. They will become an archetype, a pattern for behavior. Okay, so what did Hector do? Hector had to fight Achilles, remember? Because Achilles... Right, Hector had to fight Achilles. Helen was stolen away from the Greeks and was taken to Troy. And Hector now has to fight the great hero of the Greeks. Um, and he knows that he's not going to win that fight. He's the greatest warrior in Troy, but he's no Achilles. He's not going to win that fight. But he has to accept his fate. He has to die fighting for his principles, for his people, for the greater good. He must voluntarily self-sacrifice in order to be an example of voluntary self-sacrifice. That's the archetype. And it's the same archetype, by the way, that's reflected in the figure of Jesus. Voluntary self-sacrifice. Now, the image of Hector has transformed for us into the image of Christ. Isn't that interesting? And I think that's a great analogy of how a story reflects an archetype and how the archetype can change over time and how the meaning, deep, the deepest meaning at the deepest level is the same. All right, that brings us to the myth. So we're going to call this section Cosmogony. All right, Edinger says, a consideration of Greek mythology must start with the myths of creation. There are several versions the simplest is, first there was chaos, and out of chaos, earth or Gaia emerged. Gaia gave birth to the sky, Uranus, and then Gaia and Uranus produced a great progeny. So the chaos, so from chaos, 
a pair of world parents emerged and separated, who then created all the rest that exists. So I have to point out, for my audience anyway, that the story, we just heard a very summary version. We, it's one sentence. First there was chaos, and out of chaos the earth, or Gaia, emerged. Gaia gave birth to the heavens, Uranus, and then they produced a great progeny, right? Uh, heaven and earth together produced a whole bunch of new gods. That's the birth of the gods in the beginning, you know? Is that familiar at all to you? You guys heard that before? So what, what is being described in the beginning was chaos. Chaos is clearly heaven and earth together because that's what emerged from chaos. Chaos is the one, the thing that was there at the beginning, the Ouroboros. The same thing we hear about in the Babylonian story. Instead of, instead of Gaia and Uranus, it's Tiamat and Apsu. The same, but the same story. They're together in the beginning, in the chaos. And, and in their union, while they're one thing, they're giving birth to all these gods within themselves. Now imagine gods are psychological forces. And imagine yourself as the Ouroboros. And all of these gods that are being born within are these psychological forces that are being born within you when you're developing. The gods are being born within your, within your consciousness. And that's what we hear in the Babylonian story. And that's, where we, that's what we hear in the biblical story. Right? In the beginning, everything is separated from the one. The heavens from the earth. The waters from the land. You know, man from woman. Or woman from man, I should say. So you see this separation of the world parents. In the Babylonian myth, Tiamat and Apsu get separated. How about the Maori myth from New Zealand? Ragni and Papa. This heaven and the earth, they get separated in the beginning. And all the gods that were born between them get released into the world. You know? As if from, you know, Pandora's box. They get released into the world. This is the same story. Isn't that strange? In ancient Greece, in ancient Babylon, the ancient Hebrews, and the Maori from New Zealand on the other side of the world, on an island separated from everyone else for, for thousands of years. And we hear the same story about the beginning that's archetypal. It wouldn't be common among all people in all time if it wasn't deeply archetypal. And Edinger says, what would that mean psychologically? So what does this creation story mean psychologically? He says, for one thing, it is an image of how the personality first begins. Creation means that something new comes into the world. From whence did it come? The only place it can come from is the void of non-being, characterized in the myth as chaos. That is, the unbegotten womb of all things yet to be. Nothing new can emerge unless one is willing to dip into chaos and pull it out. Okay. So... The creation story, when we, I think we saw a better, a better, a more in-depth take from, um, from Neumann and from Jung himself on this, but Neumann in particular, when he talks about the separation of the world parents and the Ouroboros, I think that's probably the best, uh, the best take. If you guys can go back and listen to, re-listen to the, to the first Neumann episode. But, um, he describes how, how consciousness is born from the unconscious, 
and the unconscious is something like what the myth of the Greek myth is calling chaos, the thing that has always been there, the thing that everything comes from. And consciousness comes out of it. It emerges out of it. And it's, it somehow manages to become its own self from the unconscious. It separates itself off. And that's the separation of the world parents that we see in myth. The creation isn't exactly the creation of the cosmos. It's the creation of your individual consciousness. And I have to point out that there's not a big difference to us between the birth of the cosmos and the birth of our consciousness. Because when we opened up our eyes, that's when the world began for us. And when we closed them permanently, that's when the world ends for us. So the stories we tell about the creation of the world, they're really the stories about the creation of our own conscious being. And I'm not entirely convinced that they're not different stories, that they're in fact the same thing. And that's what Edinger points to when he says, for one thing, it's an image of how the personality first began. That's how the ego first emerged, how consciousness first emerged from the unconscious. And just like that, that's the first new thing to be born. And just like that, anytime we want something new, we have to go back to the source. We have to go back to the unconscious and pull it out. And it's funny because that's a dangerous task. Going, going to the unconscious, to the primordial God. You know, that's the hero story that we, that we hear from mythology. It's the same myth which Neumann says describes the original separation of consciousness from the unconscious, Ouroboros. That's the treasure, right, that the hero gets when it slays the dragon. That's the new thing. And the first new thing was consciousness itself. All right, Edinger says... Once it's out, by that he means consciousness, it promptly splits into two, the earth and sky, in terms of the myth. The very process of achieving consciousness involves a splitting into opposites. Things can remain in their state of oneness only as long as they are unconscious. Okay, and so what he's saying here is the moment the unconscious became two things, the moment consciousness emerged from it, that everything splits in two. When the moment that God splits in two, everything splits in two. And the um, creation of opposites is an illustration of, well, of, of consciousness. It's what it's like to be conscious, right? It's, it's, it sounds a little bit vague, but the idea is really straightforward. How we understand things, how we understand ourselves and the world around us is through opposites. It's through opposition through relationships, relatedness, it's am I higher or lower than this reference? Am I, you know, darker or lighter than this reference? Am I subject or object? Am I male or female? Am I like these things or unlike these things? Everything is like that. And our understanding breaks everything into categories, uh, into oppositions. And that's how our consciousness experiences the world. As, to, as split into opposites, into an opposition. All right, he goes on, he says, The myths tell us that Uranus and Gaia, you know, heaven and earth, were the first king and queen in the divine kingdom. So the divine kingdom, you just call that the unconscious, you know? And there, these are the archetypes that exist in that unconscious. 
He says, there were wars for the kingship, and a series of dethronements took place in this very early mythology. So if you guys remember the, the Titans and the Olympians, and all, there, was, there was war in the beginning, where the gods were fighting amongst themselves. And he says, these early dethronements can be thought of psychologically. He says, humankind had not yet appeared in this state of the story. Hence, the ego did not exist. So we're talking about spirits existing in heaven, or for a for, uh, psychological frame, uh, we're talking about archetypes in the, unco- in, the, in the unconscious, right? He says, these ancient deities can be seen as prefigurations of the ego. What does he mean by that? By the things that come before the ego, the things that make the ego possible, the things that make consciousness possible. So all these gods that are being created in the myth... Remember when heaven and earth are together in chaos and all these gods are being born, when Tiamat and Apsu are one thing and in, in this creative sexual act of union, they're, they're giving birth to all these gods within themselves. Those gods are the psychological forces that are, that are needed so that consciousness can emerge. They're the prerequisites for consciousness. Edinger says, they were undergoing a certain transformative evolution signified by the earliest dethronements. So it's like this. It's like you've got all these psychological forces existing uh, within your psyche. And one of them is your ego, the thing that you think of as yourself. But you've got all these other forces, and you know that you do, because you think about times in which you don't feel like you're in control. And that's how you know you're, you're, you're dealing with archetypal forces. You know, things like lust or anger are really good examples, where they take away your agency, and they make you... <laughs> Act in ways you you wouldn't otherwise act. They 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 take over. You know, like you're like you're possessed by a spirit, and those spirits have to be organized into a hierarchy. Somebody has to be in charge. So establishing the hierarchy of psychological forces, you know, survival instincts. Obviously, they go at the bottom. They're they're foundational. If we don't survive, we don't. You know, we, that's it. Game over. So survival goes at the bottom. Consciousness probably somewhere at the very tip top. And so consciousness has to be at the top of the hierarchy, has to be able to control all of the other psychological forces underneath it. So think about your consciousness as a spirit, right? And all these other spirits within you are just like your consciousness. And somebody's got to get control of this. They all, all of them want to be in control. And you know that if you get hungry, you know, if you get really hungry and all you can think about is eating and you start getting angry and you start lashing out, they're all wanting to dominate. Every one of those forces wants to be on top, in control. And that is the war of the gods, right? A pecking order needs to be established within the psyche. And so you see Armageddon, right? You see the battle between the angels and the demons. You see Ragnarok, the battle between the Asir and the Veneer. You see a war of gods vying for the top spot. And that's what you see in the Greek myths. The Titans and the Olympians, you know, fighting against each other. And he says, Uranus got into trouble because he imprisoned certain of his children. What, what might that mean, you know, that, that Uranus, uh, one of the primordial gods, imprisons his children? You might think of that as wanting to keep those powers unconscious or keep them under his domination in the, in the pecking order, right? 
in the story, it says upset at Uranus's imprisonment of them. The mother, which is Gaia, the great mother, you know, stirred up her son Kronos to revolt against Uranus. Kronos castrated him. The drops of blood that fell on the earth generated the furies, and the genitals fell into the sea and are said to have given rise to Aphrodite. The consequences of Uranus's castration might be thought of as the birth of desire, Aphrodite, and the birth of punishment, the furies. All right, so here we're here we're seeing the story of this war of the gods, and uh, you know wh- where the conflict came from and what's going on. So Uranus and Kronos, and uh, Kronos is trying to take over from his from his dad, who's at the top of the hierarchy, and to do that, he kills and castrates him. And you see that same thing happening in the ancient Egyptian story of Isis and Osiris. Osiris gets castrated, and his penis gets thrown into the Nile, right? And it's from that disembodied penis that Horus is born. Just like we see the drops of blood that fell on the earth became the Furies, and the genitals of of Uranus that got thrown into the sea became Aphrodite. You see the same exact themes in the ancient Egyptian story of the birth of Horus. But also the blood of the gods, you know, falling into the earth and, and creating new gods. That's something that we, we see in the Babylonian creation story also. When mankind is created in that story, a god is killed and the blood of the god is mixed with clay of the earth to make human beings. So you see that happening there as well. And then at the end it says... Uh, well, let's see here. Um, oh, yeah, it says that the consequences of Uranus's castration uh, might be thought of as the birth of desire and punishment because it became Aphrodite, the goddess, and the Furies, right? And if you guys don't know, Aphrodite is the god, the goddess of. Um, well, she's the goddess of of love and and uh, desire and um, and and sexual desire. There are other gods like Eros that come to mind, but that sort of thing. So you you kind of see Aphrodite representing like positive emotions, you know, and the Furies, you know, which he, he calls punishment, you see them as negative emotions. So what's born is something like good and evil, you know, what's born from, uh, you know, from the overthrowing of the God is something like good and evil. And Edinger says, in the case of both Uranus and Kronos, a principle that is in power seeks to perpetuate itself and to eliminate all threats to its authority. And if that sounds like a strange thing for gods to do, uh, or a strange insecurity for a god to have, um, I would just say that that's exactly the same survival instinct that we see in biological life. Survival of the fittest. Pass along your genes and eliminate all the threats to that. That that runs so deep into into being that we can't separate it, you know? And he's, he's talking about this same type of thing in the battle of the gods, in the establishment of this hierarchy of psychological forces. He says, This is an image of what can happen within the psyche. An old principle must die if development is to proceed, and it has to be overcome by the merging of new of a new principle itself. So something has to die for something new to be born. And in the myth, it's it's talked about as the death of one god to, to give birth to, to a new one. And you can see in that the image of transformation again, coming back, 
the image of redemption coming back. Um, something like that. And the thing that is old, that's dying, when consciousness emerges, is this, is this unconscious state, this perfect state of unity that was there at the beginning. It's sacrificed so that something new can come about. And that, that new thing is, is consciousness. All right, Edinger says, It happened as well when it was prophesied that Cronus might be deposed by one of his offspring. He reacted by swallowing all his children, a primordial version of the devouring parent or the devouring mother, an image universally encountered. All right, so there's, there's a very deep myth about the devouring mother, and Zeus, uh, Zeus's, um, or excuse me, Kronos is, is taking the place of this devouring mother character, um, but the idea is like the Oedipal mother. It's, um, you know, if the, if the force in your life that's meant to care for you, your mother, um, gets out of hand, if her care starts to become, um, you know, too much of a good thing, then you end up with arrested development. You end up with failure to launch. You know, if your mother takes care of all your needs, at a certain point, you are unable to take care of yourself, you know, when you should be. As an adult, for instance, so this devouring mother idea is it relates to this idea of well, a mother putting a child back into her womb, not allowing it out of the womb, something like that, or reabsorbing it back into herself it's like it's like the consciousness that's struggling to free itself from the unconscious, and the unconscious just won't let it just won't let it go, you know. And so this is the image we see with Kronos swallowing all of his children. He doesn't want to let them go. He doesn't want them to be um, standalone. He wants them to be a part of himself. He wants to rule them. He doesn't want them to, to have standalone existence. All right, it says, Ultimately, Kronos was replaced by Zeus. A whole dynasty of psychic authorities was being overthrown and replaced by a new one. There was a real war of the gods in the ancient pantheon. And so Zeus, who's the god of order, the king of the gods, he comes to rest at the top of the hierarchy. And like Horus, he represents consciousness. So consciousness fights its way to the top of the hierarchy to be the king of the gods. Think about times when your instincts for survival, say, or, or procreation, trumped what your higher conscious mind wanted when you felt like you weren't in control exactly. That's evidence that those psychological forces exist within you and that they need to be ruled. And the king of the gods, that's, that's the thing that rules, right? That's consciousness. And it had, it had to fight its way up there. You know, consciousness was not the first spirit to be born. It had to fight its way from the bottom all the way up to the top. And we tell those stories with the War of the Gods. Isn't that interesting? All right, he says, The Titans who were vanquished become sacrifices for humankind's well-being. Right? So when the gods, the old gods, excuse me, the new gods conquer the old gods, um, those old gods become sacrifices for human beings. He says the archetypal contents that they represent went into the service of the ego. And that's that reminds me of a Jungian idea of integration you know you take these powers that you that you saw as existing outside of yourself 
and you take them, you bring them within yourself. You, you make them weapons for your own arsenal, you know? Um, I, I was trying to, struggling for an analogy there, but, uh, but you, get the, you get the picture that these titans represent some psychological powers, that once they become dominated by the ego, once the, once the ego becomes, uh, you know, the, sits at the top of the hierarchy, the consciousness sits at the top of the hierarchy, um, it now absorbs into itself whatever powers those other psychological forces that it defeated represented. And so that might be something like if it's anger and lust that were giving you trouble, and you conquer those things, you find a way to conquer those things, now you bring those forces under under control. Now you're no longer apt to strike out when you get angry. But you can use the force of anger and put it to good use when it's needed. Right Now, now you've integrated it and it's become a tool for yourself. Uh, if it's lust, maybe it's that you've conquered that, uh, that as well. And so you're not apt to fall victim to... Um, you know, to uh, the wiles of some other, some other woman, but you understand the wiles and you can use them to your own advantage if you need to, you know, you can be flirtatious if you need to, uh, whatever it might be. So this is an example of integration of how those psychological forces, um, get brought under the control of consciousness. And Ittinger says the primary example of, of this sort of thing in the Greek story is, is of Prometheus. Now, Prometheus' story begins when he was assigned to supervise the separation of the sacrificial meat to determine what part goes to the gods and what part goes to human beings. And if you guys haven't heard the story, what Prometheus does is he wraps up um, the fat and uh, uh, you know all the all the best parts of of the meat. He wraps them around the outside. Imagine putting a couple of hundred dollar bills uh, on top of a big roll of ones. This is what Prometheus did. He presented to the gods the meat that was sacrificed to the gods. Um, and back then, the priests would just eat the meat, right? The, the meat was given to the gods, quote-unquote the gods, but the priests would just eat them or div- divvy them out to the poor or whatever. So this is what he's talking about, the story happening, but but the gods are the characters. And, and Prometheus tricks the gods into giving human beings the really the good meat by making the, the bones and the gristle and all that look appealing by wrapping it with fat and stuff like that. So... Um, Edinger goes on, he says, Prometheus deceived the gods by wrapping up bones and skin for them in a very enticing package and leaving all the nourishing meat for humankind. In punishment for this, Zeus deprived humanity of fire. Prometheus proceeded to steal it for the benefit of humankind. And for that crime, he was chained and his liver was eaten away each day by a vulture. All right, so Prometheus steals fire from from uh, from the gods and gives it to human beings. And I want to point out here that fire is a symbol for consciousness, just like light is a symbol for consciousness. Fire produces light, right? It illuminates. That's what consciousness does. And and light, of course, is what we see by, and sight is something that we associate with consciousness. So this is a symbol that what Prometheus gave to human being was was consciousness. Edinger says, Prometheus's story gives us profound images of the nature of emerging consciousness. First, there is a process of separation which determines what belongs to the gods and what belongs to humankind. Then humanity is provided with fire 
one could say with light and consciousness. However, there was a fearful price for this because the acquisition of consciousness was a crime. Okay. So when he says that, um, that there's a process of separation, and he's talking about Prometheus separating the meat, right, to determine what goes to the gods and what goes to, to man, it's the same sort of reflection of this separation of the world parents when, when Gaia and, and uh, Uranus were separated, when heaven and earth was separated. So you have this reflection of the creation of the cosmos that is being used again to talk about the creation of consciousness. So again, the story is very, very, very similar, maybe even identical so Prometheus is showing this example again of separation with the meat and determining what belongs to gods and what belongs to man. And I think that's interesting. It's like what realm of being or what experience belongs to man and what realm of being and what experience belongs to the unconscious, belongs to God. All right, then he says there's a fearful price to pay you know, because, of course, Prometheus gets chained on the mountain and the eagle pecks his liver out every day and he never dies. He's just suffering constantly. So there's suffering as a price, as a price for the gift of consciousness. And if you go back to Neumann, you know, Neumann called the separation of, of ego from the unconscious, the separation of the, of the world parents. He called that original sin. You know, the way the Bible talks about, you know, what, had, what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. He talks about it as, a, as an injury to the Godhead, right? Because you start off with one thing, call that God. And when you separate consciousness off from that thing, it's like you've separated or you split up God. You've, you've injured God somehow. And so that's an injury that, that, that won't go unpunished. And Edinger says, Prometheus pays for the consciousness of humanity with his suffering, much like Christ and I think that's interesting, but I also think if we're going to make a comparison to the Bible, it's a better comparison to Adam and Eve than it is to Christ. You know, When Adam and Eve broke the rules and they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they were told they would have to toil and, and, uh, you know, for the rest of their lives. And so that, that means suffering. And Edinger says, as a titan, talking about Prometheus, he belongs to the divine realm. Right? That's, that's heaven. That's the unconscious says he is an archetypal factor which so loved humankind that it put itself in humanity's service, that is, in the service of the ego, in order to promote its development. So consciousness suffers on behalf of man. You know? This psychological force suffers on, on our behalf. That's what, that's what Prometheus did. He suffered for our benefit. And I think it's interesting he uses this language because Prometheus loved, so loved mankind that he sacrificed himself. What does that, what does that sound like to you? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? It's exactly the same language. And I also think this is an illustration of integration because Prometheus represents, he's a god, he represents a psychological force, an archetype. And he sacrifices his existence for, for us, which means we integrate whatever that psychological force is that Prometheus represents, we're able to integrate that into our, our, ourself. We rule over that. It's a tool in our tool belt. All 
All right, he goes on. He says, another consequence of Prometheus' acts was the gift of Pandora. As the ego is given the powers of desire and will, it also receives the contents of Pandora's box, the suffering of human life. This is a close parallel with the myth of Adam and Eve. So to this I agree. In both cases, the Adam and Eve myth and the Pandora myth, we have a woman who betrays mankind and curses humanity to toil and suffering. And Edinger says, as these myths describe it, the unconscious state is paradise. It's Eden. It's the pre-Pandora time. And the birth of the ego is paid for by suffering. In the Bible, the birth of the ego is called knowledge of good and evil, right? And it's paid for by suffering, by the loss of paradise. All right, Edinger says, Surely it is significant that a basically similar figure appears in each of our three major scriptural sources, the Greek, Hebrew, and Christian. The figure he's referring to now is, is Prometheus, but it's kind of a redeemer or a savior type figure. Right, because that's what that's what Prometheus did, uh, saved us from um, from you know not only unconsciousness but saved us from from the torment of well not having fire. And with fire, the story tells us human beings were able to protect themselves from animals and warm themselves and eat food and make tools and metal and you know all the things that culture has has provided us. That's what we got from the gift of fire, from the gift of Prometheus, from the gift of consciousness. So that's very much a redeemer or savior type figure. All right, he says, The psychological meaning is difficult to encompass, but two aspects seem clear. One is that consciousness is accompanied by suffering. And the other is that the ego does not have to do all the suffering. Right? The ego, the thing that we think of as ourselves, is just one of the spirits within us. Prometheus According to the myth, this is, this is another force within us. It's another archetype. And it's doing the suffering on our behalf. Right? And the myth, Prometheus is suffering on our behalf. And Edinger says, there is an archetypal advocate that supports and assists the ego. Prometheus is perhaps the first and one of the finest expressions of this archetypal fact. And what that means is that the forces within us, the forces within our unconscious that we don't know, the hidden power, the hidden potential that's there within everyone, some part of that wants to help us. Some part of that is available to us if we seek it to get whatever it is we might need. That's, again, the hero story. The hero goes into the dark, fights the dragon, brings back the treasure. The treasure is whatever it is we need most. And so our unconscious is a reservoir of spiritual power, of psychic power, from which we can, from which we can go in and, and bring back new things, novel and new things. Just like our consciousness was brought forth from the unconscious, we can go back into it and get from it whatever it is we need most. And that brings me to my conclusion. In retrospect, I'd have liked to use this episode as the opening of, of the Young's Greatest Pupil series. But I did not know what I did not know. It is said that those who understand something inside and out are best able to simplify it and communicate it to others. 
To that end, Edinger may have understood the Jungian significance of mythology better than any other. Beyond this, his work adds a certain familiarity to the psychological understanding of myth, given the subject matter. Unlike von Franz, exploration of fairy tales from the far-flung reaches of the planet and Neumann's reference to the obscure Babylonian and alchemical stories, Edinger brings us the classics. He reminds us of those stories that penetrate so deeply in our Western tradition as to influence our languages, our art, and our ways of viewing the world. He shows us in Zeus the force of order within our psyche, and chaos the force of creation that we see in our artistic instincts. In Aphrodite, he shows us the deeply personal force of our passions, and in the Furies, our own terrible potential for malevolence. Edinger helps us to see ourselves in the gods, and thereby to understand them as part of ourselves. This not only redeems the power and significance of myths, which have been relegated to mere fiction in our modern world, but most importantly, begins to diminish the hard boundary between the divine and the material world. Once we come to accept that there are transpersonal forces in the world that influence and act upon everyone, we can begin to see a certain spiritual unity that ties us all together. Arriving at spiritual unity is a hint, a subtle whiff of the deepest spiritual truth. It is the breadcrumb trail that will lead the philosophers and mystics to the realization that is enlightenment, the realization that all is one. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>